Bernard Sweeney, and this is the first podcast I've done in the best part of a year. I've been away meditating and stuff like that <laughs> and not fighting with the world. Well, I had a few scraps, um, but I'm joined with two extraordinary gentlemen. Um, Robbie McPhee is our special guest today. And Robbie's a sociologist and he's written a lot of paperwork. He's a top notch um, researcher, renowned, revered and all that wonderful stuff. And Robbie's going to tell you a lot more about himself in a moment. And we also got Dylan McSharry or Dylan Foley. Uh, depends on which one is, on which state he's in. <laughs> but um, Dylan is an archaeologist slash historian. So we've got two very well-educated people and myself uneducated. So I'm a bit outside the colony. I have a different perspective, a different school of thought. We call it the Canting Academy. And if you're wondering where that is established, well, that's in the world of fantastical imaginations. So we're going to stay there. That's where I'd be coming from. And the two guys who were more scientific in their fields of expertise, I most certainly will enjoy this conversation. I think it's also, of course, not just worth mentioning, but I feel the need to mention um, the tragedies that took place in uh, Donegal, where 10 lives were lost. And our condolences and our thoughts go out to all the families and the families of the victims. And also a reminder on this particular day, uh, it's also the seven year anniversary of the Carrick Mines fire. Um, we would only hope, as a personal uh, traveller, would say that to hope the state doesn't blame the victims, because that's, a, that's an awful thing to do to people. So we're going to get on with this. We're going to have a general conversation, and I hope it'll be the, the beginning of many conversations. We'll have various guests on, uh, but we'll see how it goes. I'm confident we'll have more talks on this, because there's a lot to talk about. And I'm going to hand it over to Robbie. But again, for people just tuning in and they don't know, have no idea what the hell we're talking about, in the, context, in the context of this, it's about Ireland, it's about colonization, um, it's about what we call the traveler mentality or the traveler culture and the settled culture. And it's been recognized, and particularly in 2017, that there is a distinction between these people in how they think and their cultural traits. So that's the kind of focus, these two traits, these two cultures and colonization. So I'm going to hand it over to uh, Robbie. I was going to call you Robert Sorpolsky at one stage. He's a biologist. <laughs> But anyhow, I'll hand it over to Robbie McPhee. And uh, yeah, Robbie, you can talk and introduce yourself as long as you like, my friend. All right. Well, I suppose that the most useful way of doing this is kind of what we, we, we talked about before, is that if you, if you trace how I got involved in, in, in doing research work with travellers and solidarity with, with travellers in terms of uh, struggle for traveller equality and justice in Ireland, it, it's, it's really, if you go back far enough, it's because I had a, an interest in racism. Um, and so that puts me in, a, I suppose, in a slightly different position to other people who maybe would come through uh, uh, as anthropologists and people like that who are kind of interested in, in traveller culture uh, and ethnicity. And I'm not saying one's right or one's wrong, but it's just a, it's a different way of thinking about the kind of challenges we have. So my my general interest was in was in racism and more particularly the work. Uh, the political work that racism does, like how, do, how, do, how is racism used to, uh, to, uh, to, to do political work. So that, 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 that's the very starting point. And then I, I had a, a more specific interest in sectarianism in the North, which hadn't, hadn't been particularly well theorized or thought about. So um, I started doing work around that. And then because so, there was so little work being done in the North around racism at all, of course, when the issue of travellers and ethnicity, and particularly the push to get the race relations order extended to cover 
the, the, the six counties in the 1980s, whenever that was happening, there really wasn't anybody doing work around race in general. So I, I, got, I got pulled into to, to trying to answer the specific question of are travellers an ethnic group and do travellers experience racism? So, I mean, I know there's a there's a tradition taking ethnicity, but the, the, the main reason that ethnicity was important in that context is because you almost to qualify, if you like, for uh, for for, uh, for protection from racism, there there had to be proof that that that, that you constituted an ethnic group. So it was a necessary hurdle that we had to get across, uh, and that's how I got dragged into the uh, into the sector. And of course, once you're once you're in the sector, you, you, you get involved in uh, travel organisations, things like that, which which I did more particularly in the north, but doing research in the area. But if you go back to the, the very start of it, it was really about that question of of what kind of political work is racism doing? And in Ireland, of course, you can't ask that question without thinking about the way that it's anti-travel racism is used by, by, by politicians to make interventions politically. So you can, you can kind of see the connection between the big picture of understanding racism in the world and the, and the, and the, 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 the smaller local picture of understanding anti-travel racism in Ireland. So that's the, that's if you like my trajectory into this, this world and that's, that's still kind of the, the issue that I'm most interested in, in terms of, you know, uh, trying to do work around this, what, why, why are why are people racist towards travellers, and what are the political consequences of, of that racism? Yeah, that's quite a brilliant introduction. I hand you over to Dylan, and Dylan can give a bit of a speed himself if he'd like. Yeah, well, our, our archaeology, as, as they asked me, I work with Bernard um, on on for a good few years now on these kind of things. But I suppose in relation to that, I mean, it's I'd be predictable enough in archaeology terms in the sense that uh, yeah uh, my, my concern I would have come from the kind of uh, understanding obviously the older history of Ireland you know the like let's say long ago uh, Ireland's colonial background uh, how um, in archaeology we, we, we deal a lot with the destruction of the Gaelic world um, how and why that happened and what the uh, less so in my and i suppose here's the difference is when i started working with bernard on these things it's because we would have intersected with uh, with with the modern world and this is something which might be a little unusual but um when i started working with bernard on this it's more to do we we began applying say like archaeology and history like that especially new genetics information and that two questions in the present um which of course uh, is necessary in a, in a country like Ireland. We have a lot of, as Robbie would uh, know, uh, as we would all know, um, that the roots of the racism, no matter what kind of racism in the modern world, is mostly in, is rooted in colonial history. And uh, Ireland, if nothing else, Ireland is one of the exemplars of colonial history, <laughs> uh, how it began and how it um, unfolded from since about the. Well, we could go right back to the 12th century, but even if we started in, say, the 16th century. And um, so I, I had, a, there was a lot of disparities in, the, in even the way that I noticed the way the Irish state, say, archaeology is a product, and I must, we must remember this, product of uh, the, the English system in Ireland. Uh, the states in Dublin and, and the like in the 19th century. And so it hasn't been great at addressing a lot of the facts that... Um, 
the political nature of how archaeology itself was set up, which was to legitimize the modern state, that kind of thing. And so I, I would have seen a lot of weird, strange anomalies just for being in the west of Ireland, for example. And we would study castles or something like that. I often give this example. We would study castles and we would use maps that had maps of the counties of Ireland and a distribution of castles mapped onto them. And um, even years ago, when I was first studying that in college, I would have kind of dawned on me gradually that this doesn't make any sense um, because these counties didn't exist when these castles were built. Yeah. So, so why why are we doing this now? <laughs> and, then, and even though they were aware, we're aware of the fact that this is that this was the case, the state insists. Kind of, we still have this academic and state construction that kind of insists that somehow there's this eternal counties going off into the past. And even the ancient past has to be interpreted in terms of counties, which of course were English inventions. Mm -hmm. And so that's my interest. My interest is in reconstructing the Gaelic world ultimately. But of course, to do that, we have to deal with a lot of things that we that have been handed to us in the present. And a lot of that work, to be honest, we it's a strange path, but between Bernard coming from activism and injustice on one side and myself vaguely kind of walking into that in, in from the other d direction um it's quite it's a yeah it's an interesting journey i'd say that's my kind of thank you very much yeah, the, the, the thing the yeah. thing i would immediately pick up on from from that is you know i i, I completely agree in terms of the, the colonial history obviously but i think that in terms of travel experience in in ireland there is a there's a, a striking new phase, if you like, after 1922. And I suppose that, that, that what I would suggest is that before 1922, the vast majority of Irish people, whether they were traveled or settled, had faced a hostile state, a state that didn't operate in their interests. Uh, and, and by that, I mean that the, the vast majority of the, of, of the Catholic population, really, whatever class background they, they came from. Um, so 1922, marks the point at which that those stories suddenly diverge because for the first time the state does operate in, in the interest of at least a portion of the, the settled Catholic population uh, and then it re-intensifies it's it, 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 the state re-intensifies its uh, uh, it, its anti-travelism after that period so it's it's a it's a very abrupt severing of the commonality that travelers and settled people experience under colonialism and that you know if we want to understand what's wrong with the state and its relationship to travelers today we have to date it actually you know we can you can see a lot of issues before 1922 but you have to yeah you have to date it from 1922 in the, in the sense that that's the point at which um a, a very profound division was in terms of the relationship with, with the state of, of travelers and the relationship with the state of settled people was okay. instituted and that that's why that uh, independence, if you like, or the, the whatever you want, however you want to characterize what happened in 1922, I, I would call it a white dominion. It definitely marks a new phase, and in some ways, a worse phase in in, in terms of travelers, traveler experience of the state. Yeah. yeah. Well. <clears throat> uh, yeah, yeah, I, I can see why. I, could, uh, I would. We would have no disagreement with that. Mm. Except that obviously we would go back a little bit further on that because I would say that there's no the division you're talking about uh, of the state uh, after 1922 becoming uh, serving only a section of the population. Yeah. Um, it, it of course is true, but uh, 
we, we, we removed to some extent in the south, southern state, we removed the top layer of the of the uh, empire, yeah, uh, which had up to that point been favoring mostly favoring Protestants and and that kind of thing. Yeah. But but what we would characterize to make it to put it simply, the reason we would go all the way back to the 1600s would be to actually understand that exact thing. Why does that conflict emerge? Why did this? Why does the state suddenly, seemingly suddenly turn uh, its ire on travelers and have to other them that much yeah. after the 1920s? Well, we would say that that would be the reemergence of a very old conflict between what's the English colony, which was originally Catholic. And had been yeah. and had been for centuries within the pale, yeah. um, and that the actual what we constructed as the settled community, who now at that stage in 1922 are regarded as Irish as such, um, uh, because they you know and they are in a way, but um, but their actual descent of the systems, the the laws, the courts, the um, the uh, academia. The church, all that kind of stuff, had actually really had its origins in Irish Catholic culture of the Pale specifically, and of the urban towns. Now, in 1600, this was the this was the minority culture in the in the, in the country that was within the city walls, and it's, it's it's vital for us to understand that the conquest in 17th century extended that culture across the country as being the normal culture, yeah. and and destroyed the Gaelic culture. Or attempted to destroy all of the Gaelic culture, and basically to eliminate it as it had no history, wiped it out. Uh, you know, demolished all the buildings and it destroyed everything as we know. Um, so, however, what we have before even 1600 is about 400 years at least of this pale state being within the Dublin state, the the origin of the modern state even being within its boundaries in the pale and having a culture of there the, that it's the real Catholics that it's the yeah. real. It's the real Ireland. It's the legitimate one that's in control of the country. And so just like taking the, taking the lid off of a, of a kettle or whatever way to put it, uh, we, we, we would characterize that as being the 1922. What you, happen, what you said happened, absolutely yeah. happened. But we would say that it's actually not a, not a, not a sudden division, but the reemergence of an old conflict between two forms of, of uh, the original um, the uh, let's say the most Gaelicized inhabitants of the country, all from doesn't matter if it's travellers, Irish speakers, West of Ireland people, Ulster people, whatever. The further they are culturally from the pale culture, yeah. more likely they are to be persecuted. Yeah. And so we we that we would suggest that that's the reason for the persecution is that remove the empire, and now you have the emergence of reemergence of an old conflict. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I guess. Yeah. Mine was a more of a personal experience growing up. So I had um, certain forms of uh, segregation, usual tinker, itinerant, gypsies, knackers, all the usual names. Um, and I oh yeah, that was long lasting. So to explain that to people that maybe wouldn't fully understand what it's like, but I'll give an example. And I never thought about this until very, very recently. But if I was going into a court, into the local authorities, even to the village or a town or a shop, I come consciously aware that I'm a traveller. And there's almost an um, anxiety with it. And the mind starts racing faster and faster and faster. So you're, that's a constant thing for travelers. And I think when we take a slight step back, we're looking at the psychological issues, where now we're looking at traveler children dying um, and our community dying at a life expectancy. It did not ever, it never happened in the history unless we were getting struck down hundreds of years ago. It just didn't happen. 
like all our previous generations in the 50s, the 60s, the 40s actually lived longer than the travelers do today. So it kind of told me there was a psychological issue going on here. What we early experienced also was a curiosity about settled people, although the settled term wasn't in my head. I just knew they were different because we were different. So I had that in my head growing up the whole time. And then I got big into the mentalities. I was influenced by Star Trek um, and stuff like that, actually. And then I grew up looking at some of the civil rights movements, Malcolm X talking about the white liberals and their, all their fancy words and going nowhere and all this kind of stuff. And all of this was kind of connecting. I was like, I mean, that's very similar to what we're going through. Um, so yeah, we were constantly conflicted with talk, asking a million questions in my mind, and nobody, absolutely nobody could tell me at any time, whether it be a teacher in a school or later on in the universities, why did all this happen? Why was there settled people? And why was there travelers? And why do we go at each other, at each other like this? So when I got back a bit more into the history and understanding and in colonization and the psychological effects it has, I came across what they call the surrender and regrant, which was in, I think 1530. So that kind of stuck with me. Uh, even a number of years ago when I couldn't read and write, I had taken down a picture of it and I kept it in my phone. It was actually 11 years afterwards when I went through a lot of psychological challenges that I went back to it. So I was thinking about it and it was because they the 1600s, the English brought in their institutions. And even the guy called Edmund Spencer, his job was to change the psyche of the Irish, change the language, control them, dominate them. And even Queen Elizabeth, I think a second, would have referred to Hugh O'Neill as a creature of their own because he was educated in Trinity College. So all these things would stuck with me, silly things at the time. You couldn't tell anyone because you, it sounds stone mad, like the one that flew over the cuckoo's nest. So all bottled up, but I kept trying to patch it together. So then I was thinking that, okay, tinker, itinerant, traveler, all of these labels, um, they, don't, they don't seem to mean the same thing to us as they do to settled people. It's like the word tinker, you dirty tinker, smelly tinker, and all this kind of words. So they had a kind of a very hostile meaning to them. So when you trace the words back to an English origins, this is what the English put on a group of Irish people that they also called noble savages, people who were depossessed or, or refugees because of a lot of conflict on the island. So for me, this was the beginning of the settled mentality. And then I started to realize, come 1922, no institutions had changed. Then I was thinking, oh, turn this right around. We're not ethnic. Let's say we're indigenous. We'll come to the words in a minute. But um, let's say we're indigenous. And the settled people are the subculture of an English culture. Because why else would Irish people be calling us tinkers and itinerants and finding nomadism and ethnic and all these words strange when they're a very common practice in a Gaelic mentality? But in a settled mentality, there's something different, but they're almost also identical to what the English applied. So that kind of created this parallel of mentalities, traveler mentality, settled mentality. Another way of explaining this would be traveler culture and settled culture. Cultures based on your mentality, what you think, how you think, and so on and so forth. So that kind of created a parallel. So going back briefly to both of your points, both of you are absolutely right. Um, it, it, the ethnic thing, that's perfectly fine for the time that was in it. Ethnic, in the meaning, was a, an identity. There was something here to protect. Um, we weren't quite sure what it was ourselves. And for the identity part, well, again, we can go back to the 1600s because you think about the vagrancy acts um, and all of these itinerants and vagabonds and tinkers and travelers, all of them came in a continuous line. So even if we didn't know our, our identity, these machines and institutions kept reminding us. 
every single day that we were the other, we were different. So yeah, and also from a cultural aspect, where we grew up in clan, um, in clans. I mean, on the outside it looked like gangs, but in the inside they're actually clans. And we had our spokespeople, our chieftain, my granduncle was our king, and stuff like this. Sounds very sillyish and out of date now, but you know it lasted for centuries. And a lot of that we were seeing play out in the west of Ireland, whether you're McDonald's, Wards, McKinley's, Sweeney's. All of them had clans, and all these traits arranged weddings. Some clans wouldn't marry into other clans because it would weaken their position of clanship or whatever it might be. So there was a, a rich culture in that sense. Also, we were crumbling under the psychological pressures of the world around us um, because we hadn't got a clue why these people were so upset all the time, what was bothering them so much. And I'll give you an example. They'll tell you, say, I've mentioned before, they'll tell you, get an education, but just close down a school. They'll tell you, get a house, or they'll burn down the house. So there were always constantly full-on or contradictions. They didn't know what they wanted. So I'll hand it back over to Robbie because you walked along with Nan Joyce, uh, Michael McDonough, and all these travelers. And I would say to anyone, particularly the disciplines like that, is that you would have had a, a very unique perspective to yourselves. Because the way I would see that is this is an ancient old mentality. We're not the yeah. same people who are the generation before that, but these are the same systems that has been for generations before that. So one way or the other, we are outside of the colonial mentality. It's not about a travel mentality or tinker mentality, it's just out of the colonial one. I, I think <clears throat> I think that's true, but I suppose that the thing that I would sort of immediately want to come back on in terms of of well, I suppose this is me being a sociologist, and it's kind of it's interesting that I'm saying this now because usually I'm the one who's saying what you, both of you are saying is that history really matters, and and not just history, but you know, nine hundred years of history in Ireland, and of course that's true, and I absolutely agree with that. But the point I would also make is that being a traveller and being a settled person in Ireland. Uh, 900 years ago or 500 years ago is very different from from both of those statuses today like there's no and and, and, that, and that's because there have been huge transformations of, of the world obviously but also uh, you know and you know just off the, the top of my head you think about industrialization you think about urbanization and, but more particularly uh, and, and in terms of what Dylan was saying I was thinking of the you know the, the last great kind of colonial reform if you like uh, of the 19th century was the land acts and and what those did was was uh transform a, a revolutionary peasant class you know a, a you know a, 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 in, in modern terms you would still say a settled peasant class but a peasant class which had a very different relationship to the land uh, than the small farmers that, that the land acts invented so that all of those all of those things transform relations between travelers and settled people and tra and, and transfer relations between both of those two groups and the state. So on the one hand, of course, you're right, the history matters. But on the other hand, it's not just about the history. There's a there's a there's a, a massive social transformation going on over that period that you have to also bring into the analysis. And that, you know, it, it, bringing it back to the, the present day, some of the issues that you're, that, you know, the really profound issues that you're trying to raise in terms of uh, contemporary traveler experience only makes sense. In, in the context of a of of the, of the state that we have now, in the in, in the context of most people living in cities, in the context of uh, there no longer being any peasants in Ireland, it's all small farmers, the kind of people who would ship travellers rather than welcome them into their house. You know, I mean, that's putting it very simplistically. But all of those changes now structure the way that that uh, travellers have to fight for justice. And so, on the one hand, the history matters, but it also has 
changed and we need to be we need to be kind of um you know always sensitive to the to, to the, the the hugeness of those changes while at the same time acknowledging the continuity of, of the colonial experience which you know you, you don't you never have to persuade me of that i i i, I argue to that all the time like uh, you know, like I was just thinking as, as you were talking, the classic example in Belfast is that the one of the main streets is still called Chichester Street. It's named after a man who celebrated going out uh, along with Belfast Lock and just butchering men, women and children as he went. Like, you know, one, if you, if you read his story, you go, this guy was a genocidal maniac, but still he celebrated as, uh, 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 as uh, one of the people who, the most important people in the, in, in the history of Belfast. So of course the history is there, it's present and it structures our lives, but at the same time, the other stuff has to be integrated into the analysis as well. I think it's absolutely brilliant points and you're absolutely right. I think if you look at our brochure and you see the end of it, we went 500 years into the future. So we're not about the, we're not about the path. We're, we don't have a three part structure where once upon a time things were great and we want to go back there. We're very conscious beings that we're in here and the now. But if you look at our here and the now in the last five years, 50 years, 100 years or 500 years, it has been psychologically deteriorating. Like in the last 50 years, even with supports and investments and state intervention, we see travelers getting far worse psychologically. So yeah. we know there's something psychologically not right in this environment. Yeah. Yeah. Where history is important, I believe, is when I talk about settled people's history or any kind of history, I'm actually talking about the present day. Because yeah. for me, if Trinity College, Minute College and the Queen's Colleges and the King's Courts and all the institutions went on to continue to educate Irish people from an English program, therefore colonization had never ended for travelers. So our identity is long lasting as long as the institutions marked it. And that goes back from the 1600s, vagrancy acts and uh, hunting down people. And then you had the penal laws that penalized everybody. Another thing worth mentioning. Let's start again. Travellers, Irish travellers right here, right now. That label didn't exist 500 years ago. It didn't exist yeah. all that till long ago. Yeah. Before that, the same people, because I would know this, because I was called the same label, would have been thinkers. Thinkers went back a good spell. Then the one before mm -hmm. that around that was also itinerants. So itinerants went back a long time also, and they're marked or demarked by uh, acts and laws and policies of the empire. So in that uh, parallel universe that we're now talking about is that these people were identified centuries ago and continued. We may not have been the exact same people as in terms of some of our ancestors on one side of another, some of them were heroes, some of them were villains and so on and so forth. We're not the plenty victims, but we're bringing settled people's history because settled people's history is killing our present day. So we're trying to draw that attention to the history. And then of course, I will also put it another way. We're all human beings are genetically related, almost 100%, 99.9% genetically related. So all we ever could be talking about is psychology or mentalities and cultures and identities. So the most important thing for people to understand is that when the geneticists come out and they said travelers had diverged from the settled population 360 years ago, that is a false narrative because we didn't diverge from a settled population. Because the settled population isn't a case of Irish people in a house and Irish people traveling. We also had castles, we had houses, we had lands. We had all of the things that would have been structurally called settled, but we also had this mentality and it was going on pretty long time. Settled is an institution program. And if you think about this, because 
when you go to the college, they don't tell you much about the Gaelic culture. Nobody knew anything about the tinkers or the travellers in recent times. They couldn't tell you anything about them. So how could these people be operating in an Irish slash Gaelic mentality with English institutions and couldn't tell us who the travellers were? So that's where we're kind of at at the moment, I think. Sure, I mean, I'm, I'm in total agreement now. And the, the question is always, or used to be always, where the travellers come from. The real question is where the settled people come from. And that's the kind of interesting, challenging sociological question is what, what, what was that process about? Right. How, were they, how were they generated? So, you know, we, I think we can, we, can, we can agree that, you know, whether or not everybody came from Africa, at one point in the world, everybody was nomadic. So nomadism is the norm. And then for, for different reasons in history around the world and also in Ireland, different things happen to, to create a, a sedentary or non-nomadic population. And, and it's that new population, which is the, the odd aberration, if you like. It's not, it's not the, the, the nomads who have, who have always been there. So that's, that's a, a useful starting point in terms of tracing that aspect of, uh, of, of traveler experience uh, in Ireland. Uh, but I would, I would, I would. I mean, I think I said this to you before that I think that it's also useful to see that in a, in a more technical sense, in that just calling people nomads doesn't really, doesn't really adequately describe what they're about, because you can have hunter-gatherer nomads like Aboriginal people in Australia, you can have pastoral nomads like the Maasai or anybody who's, uh, who, who's taking, you know, a, a, a flock of, of of sheep or, or a herd of cattle or whatever they're moving with their uh, with their animals, so they're, they're, they're pastoral nomads, or you have what uh, it, the, the category that's usually just uh, used to describe not just travelers but Romney Charles in, in Britain and, 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 and a lot of Roma across Europe as well, which is um, commercial nomadism. And I suppose the difference with commercial nomadism is that it assumes a relationship between a nomadic population and a settled population, because if you're a commercial nomad, you have to be. If you're tinsmithing, you have to be selling your your your, uh, your tinsmithing work to to somebody, and that's a, you know, for want of a better description, that's a, a settled population or a peasant class that isn't moving. So you're moving as a nomad. So it's it's already a, a symbiotic at its best anyway, a symbiotic relation, a positive relationship where uh, the settled population want what the nomads are providing, and the nomads obviously want to to to, to sell that back to them. So you know each. Those different forms of nomadism, whether they've all been in there in history, create very different dynamics for the uh, for the for the, for the populations that are that are exercising them. And you know, the classic example is that you know, for Australian Aboriginal people, the the, the settler colonial uh, population did nothing for them; it just it just genocided their 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 their, their culture essentially. But if you're a commercial nomad, you have a more complex symbiotic relationship with the with with the uh, with the, the settled population, and that you know begins to give you some flavour of the, the difference. But at the end of the day, you know there's there's no question that the way that you're coming at this that question is the right one. It's like, well, where did where did the settled population in, in Ireland come from, and what are the implications of understanding that history? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we'd prefer idea where they're coming from. I mean, they're the, you described it yourself. If you took the, you were describing it in the 1880s, for example, we could start there and say, mm. you're, you're, you're saying the, the land acts, which yes. re, redistributed land to create a kind of settled peasantry. Yeah. Well, well, one of the reasons they're doing that is that that didn't exist. We had landlords and we had uh, tenantry on the land before that. 
Yeah. Uh, and actually, if you go, so if you take another step back and go to the famine time, roughly around the famine, just before the famine, we have major, we have landlords, but then we have large sections of, the, of from um, Ulster and then across, across um, into the uh, west of Ireland and down the west coast and into Cork and everywhere. We have a huge, huge population, as you know, about 9 million people, but a huge Gaelic speaking, still culturally Gaelic population. And we don't actually have, especially in, say in my area and in these areas in the, in the Northwest, we don't, we don't have houses as such left over yeah. from that time. We don't, we don't have them because the, the, in the 17th century, when the English started to, uh, English and Irish English culture began to spread out of the pale, the, the, the cottages that we regard as, that are now regarded as traditional were actually called English houses because they were stone rectangular houses. And this is not what anyone in Ireland lived in. So if we take, if we keep taking a step back, so in, so before the famine, we won't find we won't find anything we, except in the east counties. I'm not speaking for all of Ireland, but I'd say in most of the yeah. Gaelic, in most of the Gaelic zones, yeah, we won't find things like uh, kitchen uh, high kitchen tables and stone houses and um, dresser big dressers or anything like this. This kind of thing didn't exist because this is isn't how Irish people lived. If we take another step back into the 18th century, what's what happens gradually is that we 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 have less and less evidence of what it, what we would now call settled people. Yes. In terms of physically, this is if in archaeology, and also uh, we would say psychologically in terms of what Bern, Bernard's. Yeah. Say, I think he's right to divide the to have the dividing line, of course, on mentality. Yeah. Um, this was always the struggle that the English colony had in Ireland was struggle of mentalities, if you want to put it that way. Um, for example, a lot of the uh, old laws, the English anti-Gaelic costume laws, anti-Gaelic language, anti-things like this, mostly were directed at their own at their own colonists yes. uh, originally in yes. Kilkenny and everywhere. And, and, for, and for that reason, and that reason, as we would say, is, is mainly because what they're trying to stop is Gaelicization of what of their settled community that pays taxes and yeah. what have you, who had this terrible habit of keeping on going to Gaelic Brehens and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Now, so what, what we would say simply is that the modern, that looking for settled people is in, in, in sense of mentality wise, and that is that we actually see the, the great expansion of it is that it is, the, is from the conquest in the 1600s onward. And that the modern, the modern settled, uh, you, you, you described one step on the way there, if you know yeah. what I mean, which, which was the 1880s. Yeah. However, the mentality is older than that, obviously. The mentality, yeah. if we keep going back in time, that mentality is going to be not spread across the country. It's going to be one that's indistinguishable from the mentality that Bernard describes of travelers and, yeah, yeah. and, and other Gaelic people across most of the country. And then uh, if we go right back to, say, 1530, we'll find that it's only around the Pale and it's only in the cities like Kilkenny, the walled towns like Kilkenny, Cork and Galway. Yeah. And inside them, we have a recognizable settled world, yeah. as we would call it now. But uh, outside... Yeah, I Sorry, I, I mean I completely agree. I think the point is that if you if we could if we could time travel back to to, to the even Gorton Moor, but the, there would the, there would be nothing. Uh, the, the the peasant class that you that, that was the vast majority of people in Ireland that time looked nothing like settled people. That's absolutely true. So it's a much more fluid society. The relationship to the land is uh, is, is is completely different. So on that on that basis, you know your 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 thesis is absolutely right. So that so so that, you know that. We begin to trace what are the implications of that 
it's a, it's a new 19th century phenomenon. I mean, I, I know it, obviously there's a colonial imposition that you're talking about, uh, but, uh, but 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 the point at which becomes adopted by the the mass, if you like, of Irish people, it's a it's a 19th century phenomenon, and then it's copper fastened, uh, as I suggested before, by the 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 emergence of the 26 county state in 1922, and it suddenly. Uh, assumes that this is what Irish people should look like. Yeah, that's actually very interesting. Me and Bernard were looking at that. Do you remember you were looking at paintings and stuff? That was the um, the, the rise of the modern Irish nationalism, the, the creation of an Irish identity. Bernard, Bernard had uh, pointed out to me something about um, they had gone, they'd sent, you know, the pre even before the Gaelic revival kind of thing in the late 19... Okay, so you have the shock of the famine, which causes a huge shift in what you've just described. It really drives a lot of people, the, the adoption of what we would call the settled world or mentality, and, you know, uh, eliminates the Irish language almost. Um, people start adopting the mentality. They start changing very quickly. Uh, the houses, the language, clo clothing, even everything, you know. Um, so that's the real, that's a watershed, yeah, in about, in, at the famine, as you know. And of course, then, you, then we get the construction of a modern Irish identity. And that's a little bit, that's a complex thing. I'm not going to pretend to be some huge expert on that, but we did trace some of it in the sense of the, as you come up towards the Gaelic revival, even as that culture is being destroyed, mm -hmm. um, they're constructing a, a standard Irish identity almost from the ruins of it, if you know what I mean. And this one is going to be Catholic, uh, but it's settled, it's very much settled. It's very much, uh, you know, uh, the, this is the adoption of things like... Um, yeah, you remember the, the paintings in the west of the west coast of ideal idealized Ireland, and even as yeah, it, um, so even as it's being wiped out. But what it's doing as well is it's masking the Gaelic history. It's normalizing the settled world. So yeah. now, so now, what used to be beforehand would have been regarded as English uh, Englishized culture of the Pale. Okay, the the old Catholic English culture of the Pale, uh, which at that stage was now regarded as a version of Irish culture. But now this becomes the new Irish identity normalizes that as that's normal Irish, and if that's the normal Irish culture, then the, the question immediately becomes then who are who are travelers, for example, yeah. because they, because they they represent something else, and if they're something else, well, then what is that? That can't if that's if, if we're the indigenous, if for example, let's just take it as um, if the normal culture of say South Dublin is the indigenous one to the island and it's normal, then who are these people living on the side of the road? Uh, if you know what I mean, and in a different way with a different mentality, and that and that's what we would trace the sort of the, the beginning of what you're talking about. Yeah. In 1922, when you remove the English cap on the thing, in a sense, the actual English cap uh, on the administration, then we get the emergence of actually a conflict between that ident between that um, that old Catholic uh, settled identity, which had descended from the English colony, and was now cloaked in Gaelicness, if you know what I mean, with the Gaelic revival and that, uh, a bit like Connolly's green post boxes, though we would we would we would suggest, um, and uh, and of course that identity then would be called into question if we were to if they were to look into great detail into the history of those of people like travellers, and therefore uh, it became this. Uh, it seems to have become a thing of um, well, we don't know who these who these people are, and of course it was mixed up in. Uh, let's say let's say they adopted very predictable things that we can actually trace. So we were saying about continuity, for example, Bernard mentioned it, the vagrancy laws, the actual laws, they are, even though it's cloaked in green, they didn't change anything, as we all know. They didn't change anything in 1922 in terms of laws. So 
an awful lot of the body of law, the court system and everything, actually carried on with the exact same methodology against travellers as had been used against Irish people in general since, since about 1520s. And that includes characterising them as nomads, which was actually the bit which was the basis of, in the 1500s, was the basis of the legality of, of taking land. Yeah. The idea being that, like, it's, what is it, Roman law, that if the if the people were nomadic, then then confiscation of land was legal, and that wasn't an issue. So even if people had a castle, you tore down the castle, threw them to the side of the road, declared them everyone to be nomads, and legally that was yours now, under the um, law, which at the end of the day was rubber stamped from Dublin, not even necessarily from England. For me, it's a, so, it actually there's a couple of markers that sends out, like again, start in the present, and you can go back to 1963. And that could be the source of our issues. Then you go to 1922 and you figured that the systems hadn't changed. Then you go to the 1600s again, because we have to go up these three dates. Because for me, it's a continuation. I don't see colonization, imperialism, capitalism, or late capitalism. For me, it's one event that started and had to continue. Doesn't mean people are the same, but the systems are pretty much the same. So if you go back to even the 1530s, where part of the terms and the conditions of surrender and regrant was to cut your hair, wear English clothes, obey, abide by English rules, adapt an English custom. So if you think about it, in 1620, almost 100 years later, a guy comes along called John Michelin Seed, I think his name might have been, and he created this in, interesting image about the gentleman Irish, the gentlewoman Irish, the civil Irish, and at the very bottom were the wild Irish. Oh, yeah, Spade. Yeah, I know that map. I know the one made. So basically, yeah. and then we will go back again slightly because back to the 1530s in terms and conditions, almost a century later, if not longer, people would have grown up inside an English institution. They would have been Irish, and they would have been Irish in their heart, true and true, but they were adapting an English program. So that would be, to me, the, the emergence of the spread of the settled uh, mentality. Because Irish children, after a few generations, will adapt. I've seen family members growing up as children adapting a settled mentality and actually end up hating travelers because they you know they, travel is the worst thing ever it's a, a reminder of some kind of trauma they can't understand so come up to 1916 where they needed to create a national identity dublin the dublin's in their finest people the the yates brothers uh, lady augustus margaret um, all these top people and they went into the west of ireland the english morning the ackle island and the tinker culture now, here's the interesting thing. Why would all these people be going into the west of Ireland for a Gaelic identity unless they were English? So Dublin had an English mentality. That's why they went into the west to get a Gaelic uh, vibe. That was perfectly fine. When they got it, a bit like the Gaelic revivalist. Nothing wrong with the people. Nothing, nobody's ever done wrong. Everybody was right in their own mentality in the way they were brought up and the way they were educated. So we're not blaming anyone. Not then, not now, not ever. Not as long as we understand it. So when they got the identity... It was a Protestant middle class who created the Gaelic revivalists. Again, in a Dublin uh, Englishy vibe, uh, their version of a Gaelic mentality. Of course, the Irish language, the Islanders, uh, the travellers, they got suppressed. So co- come 1922, they kept all the colonial systems. Mm-hmm. And throughout the decades, you'll see this. Again, a good point also is 1989, the Anti-Hatred Act, uh, TD called Sean Barrett had put an amendment in to remove ethnic and nationality from traveling community. So they come up with this label, traveling community, as if somehow or another, we're all traveling together around one place. And you'll even hear some of the travel academias, they've got educators in Trinity College in these places. 
can't find no written history. We lived on the fringes. I mean, it's like stations to be having because one, we're not all descendants from metal working families. The geneticists will tell us that most of us hadn't left our tools, our areas, our surroundings. We've been here generations. That doesn't mean the culture and the identity or the ethnic. Like, I know I'm going to waffle a little bit on hearing. The word ethnic and ethnicity is very, to me, very similar. And I, you're right. I do believe every human being has ethnicity. It's just yeah. never conscious or brought into question if you're in a dominant group. So since the formation of the state, yeah. they never got settled people to ever, ever, ever question themselves, never question the state. It's a given that you are the state because obviously you're the normal people. It's the other people who are different. So of course, this went on for another couple of generations where we were degenerated. We were primitive, uneducated, unintelligent, and we were pushed to the fringes so much that you know, people were dropping dead. But nobody's ever, ever, ever written a paper that I know of on settled mentality, settled attitudes, and how they're so identical to the English. So when yeah. we say anti-traveller, you're really saying, in a historical sense and in the present, anti-Irish, because there's no difference in the language or the words that the English use against the Irish in general, as most settled people sometimes use against travellers. Yeah. Does that make any sense, my friend? No, it makes a, I, I mean, the, the other, the, the, the phrase you would, that you can you, you use very often in terms of race is uh, um, pathologized presence, normalized absence. It's that idea that it's pathologized presence. So if, if if these people are present, there's something wrong. They're threatening. They're doing something wrong. And uh, but if you're talking about normality, these people aren't mentioned at all. Now that that isn't coined in terms of travelers, it's coined in, in, in terms of people of color in the, in, in the UK in particular, that's where you, you see that concept. But in terms of travelers, it absolutely makes sense in terms of what you said. It's like when you talk about travelers, it's only because they're doing something wrong and there's something threatening. And when you're talking about ordinariness, normality, travelers are not part of it. Now that, you know, those, those you can you can test that thing. And, and well, here's that, the other linguistics uh, connection to it, right? Because um, yeah. Noam Chomsky would say that language isn't taught in school you don't learn language in a school you learn it within your community it's a natural and innate part of you i disagree yeah. with him slightly where it says uh, language doesn't have um human behaviors i believe it does because again we're dapping all the english words using against irish people like you take a step yeah. back it looks like irish people got colonized then tried to colonize other irish people because that was the normal thing to do because it went on so long and unchanged um but yeah, I mean, the but, I, but I, be, I better I better defend. Uh, I, well, that's not right because the defend's the wrong word. But to to make it clear in, in terms of the sociological understanding of ethnicity is ethnicity is something that everybody has, and very often I think when the, the some of the traveler resistance to the, the term ethnicity was, well, half of it was because it's a kind of it's a very technical academic word that doesn't really describe. The, the 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 ordinariness, if you like, of people's lives. So you can see why that people didn't like it for that reason. And you know, I wouldn't defend it on that basis, but I would defend it in the notion that that, that if you recognise travellers as an ethnic group, you're simultaneously recognising the category non-traveller as just as much an ethnic group. So ethnicity is not a quality of of minorities. It's not a quality of people of colour. It's not a quality of nomadic people it's a quality that everybody has and if you if you're identifying one group as an ethnic group it means that everybody who's not part of that ethnic group is ethnic in a different way so in that sense the, the some of the resistance to ethnicity was because travelers saw it as denying their Irishness it, it, 
to my mind, it wasn't at all. It was just saying that travellers are specifically an ethnic group in the context of Ireland. But likewise, you know, and the point is, as well as being a positive one, it's also a negative one in the sense that whenever, whenever you bring in race discrimination legislation, you're not just protecting the people who've been discriminated against historically, like travellers or black people or Irish people in England or whatever. You're protecting everybody else at the same time. So it's no more legal to put up a... Uh, if you have a pub to put up a sign saying no no buffers than it is to put up a sign saying no travellers. They're both uh, illegal under because those are both ethnic categories. So in that sense, um, while you know, I'm sympathetic to, to people who don't like the word, I do have to defend the notion that when it protected people, it protects everybody. It's not just about... I actually love the word. I'm back to the point I missed a minute ago, but I actually love yeah. the word. When you were mentioned a minute ago about very similar, and you could see it now with Irish travellers, say black people in England, where we're treated. Yeah. If yeah. you take a step back from that, right, and take a step outside the colonial language, the English language, which was a very yeah. systematic language to start with, and yeah. other linguists would say that it's not like other human languages. It was a trade language. It was chopped up from other different kinds of languages. So yeah. I would say the similarity we see there, you'll see it in Aborigine from Australia, native, our first natives from Australia, first natives from Canada. You'll see it from the indigenous peoples in all lands where all European colonization had been. If you were to match up all their similarities, their treatments, the attitudes and the outcomes are almost identical. And for yeah. me, it's because Ireland was one of the first countries to be colonized by the English who manufactured a lot of psychological shift in laws and acts and policy. And they could shape people eventually. They were doing it. So they would have went to Virginia Company, which is the brains behind America, the West Indies. They would have gone to Australia, they would have gone to Canada. And that mentality also went with it. Because we look at the, the Western mentality, it's a very business-orientated way of thinking. It's individual, it's success, it's number one. And they didn't tell the children to go out and conquer the world. So, I mean, it's really textbook trauma language, if you don't understand it, I think. That's why I think we have so many similarities around the world with other groups. Um, did you see? I was just going to say, it struck me there what you're saying. Yeah, we would, we, I, I would think that, like, we, we had looked at things like, because when we're discussing the pale, we actually have to equally discuss things like if we're looking at the, as you're saying about ethnic status for Irish people uh, or for travelers and uh, others, that it implies um, other ethnic, ethnicities as well. And I would go along with that completely because we have, um, uh, the, 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 one of the ironies of the of that um, rise of that national identity in the 19th century is that it also suppressed the English history in Ireland. <laughs> yeah. um, the old English Catholic history that went right back to the 12th century um, uh, that we're talking about is, asked, is, is actually also suppressed. And I see there's a lot of work by um, Ellis, uh, your man Ellis in... Um, Stephen Ellis, yeah. Steve, yeah. Steve, sorry, Stephen Ellis in Galway on the uh, history of the Pale and things like that. But also a recognition from him that actually it's, it's difficult to get people to understand that history as well, because it is also suppressed by the national myth of if, if the culture of the pale is the normal Irish culture and we don't know who travellers are, we also don't know who these English Catholics are in the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And therefore, the, there is there can't be this. There is no English culture. I'm completely Irish, says someone in Ireland who's a settled person now. Right. And yet it's not completely true because our, all of our mentalities have been shaped by the English culture conquest and by the colonization in the country and all the rest of it um and therefore you're you're right in the sense that it, we we recognize in one ethnicity would actually free us up to recognize many including including the old english uh, colonial 
uh, one, but even the buried one, like the uh, like the English Catholic, which I actually think is vital to understand why, for example, it goes back to what we said at the beginning. It's um, vital to understand the old English Catholic uh, system that had grown up within Dublin, in the Pale and Kilkenny and other places, but particularly Dublin because of its administrative and law grounding, which is there whether the English are there or not. Mm-hmm. It's actually really important to understand that in order to understand why the free, free state would continue its persecution of people living in a different manner than it, if you know what I mean. So that's one example. But I think that actually ethnicity status for uh, travelers and things like that would actually allow us to explore that too, which is part of like the idea of where the settler people come from and who, you know, how many different identities there really are in this country that are all Irish in different ways, but, but obviously affected by mainly by English culture, but that's not the only one. I mean, we also have uh, French culture in Munster and various other strange uh, mixtures around the country that are all, you know, add to the whole thing. Like, Yeah, I mean, and the other, I mean, I just, I can't uh, miss past just because it's such a, a sort of interesting historical gem, but I know that you've, uh, you have a particular interest in Montserrat. And the, the really striking thing is that, you know, you can, you, you can see in, in pre-famine writings in, 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 in Irish, people hearing about the news about these black Gaelic speakers, sorry, speakers from, from Montserrat and going, there's something wonderful about this. And, you know, what, what that tells you is that, you know, black Irish ethnicity, if you like, was accepted uh, and normalized in, in uh, before and Gordon Moore and Gaelic culture. Just, people just thought it was interesting, but there was no, there was no, there was no racist reaction to it or no attempt to deny that these people could be Irish. It just says, uh, we 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 love the, the uh, we love the, these new black Irish because they're Gaels. So it's you know it's it, you know it's really striking that Ireland has you know over the last twenty years struggled to come to terms with the notion that it might be possible to have a black Irish identity. And yet, if you go back nearly two hundred years ago, it was just accepted as normal. Like as soon as people heard about the existence of these people who were Irish speakers, they just meant they're black Irish, and that's it. So. You know that the kind of fluidity and also the the the, 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 the ability of people to, to kind of take that on board shouldn't be underestimated. I, I see. Do, all the dear Robbie is actually. Well, I could be wrong, of course, and everything. But I, I sense there's an absolute. We're embedded into trauma, all of us, uh, yeah. one part of the country or the other. Because a lot of yeah. people living in the town, right, and they've been stripped from many opportunity of education. They've been stripped yeah. of their Irish language, and then when they hear. Well, comfort to commas, just sort of joke, the Yanks speaking Irish, it really yeah. pisses them off and it irks them and it hurts them. And some of that I know myself, I often felt it. it, it it's an, you feel it in the solar plex. It's like a shame and a guilt that you should know your language, you should know your culture, but you don't, this kind of feeling. Yeah. Um, so you get angry at other people when they do it, especially if gym people are you know, coming up to your face speaking in Irish and stuff like this. If, if, if automatically you should be speaking. And also I think what happens where sometimes separating travelers as a group and not recognizing them as a community, which is slightly different because I'll often often heard even modern day politicians, we got other groups too. We got women's groups, children's groups, poor groups, this group. And we're saying, well, yeah, we got them all in the group. So we're not a group or a community, um, that kind of way. But even with that, um, and a good way of looking at it was the 1963 report when they looked into the report and they were talking about travelers. These people have no centralized government. These people have no one leader representing them. And we function like that as common sense. Why would you want one person speaking on behalf of all the different clans? We can speak for ourselves. And, and that was pretty much a very sort of Gaelic vibe also. As far as I know, according to Dylan, there was no centralized government. 
So we, yeah, there's nothing was strange in the Gaelic culture. Everything is kind of strange in the settled one, like ethnic people moving around and traveling and their customs and their cultures. I mean, all of that was perfectly normal in a Gaelic mentality. And then you'd had all different groups. You got the higher end of Gaelic culture. You might have the, the kind of lower end of it. You got old English who became Gaels. You had the Spanish, you had the French, you had Protestants. Um, so there wasn't anybody couldn't be a Gael. It's whoever adapted that mentality. It was normalized. You were accepted because you were just part of the everyday environment kind of thing. So I think there's definitely a lot to be worked on the mentality. Um, the old mentality of the Gaels, I suppose, and the modern one of the Irish settled because they're, they're still operating, I think. Oh, the one last thing I want to say about that, oh, no, a lot of things. But to say that when I say that, we're not trying to claim an identity and then turn around and say to everybody else, you're not this, you're something else. We're saying if we go back far enough, go back a few decades, go back a century, go back two centuries, we would have came from the same gene pool, the same environment, the same Gaelic world, regardless of where, or how we worked or where we functioned in that, with the higher or the lower, the ins and the outs. It didn't matter. Post 1920s, uh, post 1600s, beyond the pale, was a pretty much Gaelic society. So we don't have to keep proving ourselves to fifth century or uh, this kind of worker. We're just turned down 1600s come. We don't have to prove who we are. All we have to do is start to settle, settle people. Where did you get your institutions, your acts, your laws, your administration, your in, everything? That's, um, you can date it back into an English kind of institution. So pe the settle people can think now about identity. When they're asking travelers who we are, just ask themselves who they are. Um, another thing I would say about identities, because this isn't about traveler versus settled. It's, it's a really a human experience. We're in the kind of a situation where a lot of people are dying. So we're not really that hung up about the labels. We didn't care if settled people called themselves whatever. We didn't give a shit. You know, get on with your lives kind of thing. But it seemed yeah. to give them bother about the labels we should carry. So I would say that um, even in the West of Ireland, go back. We're not saying that we're Gales, you're not. We're this, you're not. Keep going back. We can say we're sprinter, we're shattered. There's a lot of different pieces of the Gaelic world still operating, probably even still in Dublin at this point, there still is. But it's kind of bringing that together, that shattered glass together, I think. I know, but then, I suppose the bet where I, I, I think that falls short, if you like, that, is that while you're absolutely right to challenge people and, the, and they should be able to answer it, most of the time they can't. They just don't, they never have asked the question out of the way. They still want to know where travelers come from, not where the, they came from themselves. Um, but at, at the same time, you know, I, I put it in comparative context. It's like, uh, you know, Native Americans are dealing with exactly the same kind of challenges that you're talking about in terms of, uh, uh, you know, young travelers in particular, or, or Native Australians don't just have to pose that question to the white settler population that they live in, but they also have to then also negotiate with the kind of the, the society that has merged, emerged from that history. And this is the point I'm making about urbanization, industrialization, like the world that is oppressing them and excluding them is so far removed from the, from the starting point of, you know, the colonial expropriation of Ireland that you, it's not an either or, but you, you, have, you have to have some way of saying, well, we, we have to deal with the here and now as well as uh, encouraging these people to confront their own uh, their own history and that's that, that that's in some ways for me the, the harder bit because it's you know just saying that uh, indigeneity um, should empower people in North America and should empower people in Australia whether well it's true doesn't actually liberate them in any way like because they then they then have to use the knowledge that they get from that to confront 
a, yeah. a system that that make, makes them profoundly unequal. So it's yeah. it's a, it's you know knowing the history is really important. And I you know I whenever I'm hearing you speak, Bernard, I, I keep I, I think of Steve Biko and Black Black Consciousness and Consciousness in South Africa, the movement. Um, more than anything else, I think it's really a really important model for for travelers. But at the same time, the consciousness is only the starting point of a struggle for justice and equality. And 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 at the at, at the point where you you're, you've you've raised your consciousness, you then have to step into the real world and confront all these systems and institutions which are discriminating and repressing all the time. And that. You know that 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 can't be transformed just by consciousness alone. It's it's, it's transformed through political oh. action. Well, we we yeah exactly. It, 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 I would suggest yeah it is. You're right. It's a political question. But I would yeah. say that the that the uh, you know it's a bit like uh, as I, to you know if you're, you you can't fix an engine unless you understand how it was built kind of thing. Uh, yeah, um, absolutely. You want to be taken apart. So we would say that roughly speaking, yeah, the focus is not on it's not it's not enough just that people are conscious of where they come from. That's not enough. You have to understand how that system itself was built because the people within the system could have the like you could you know the dublin civil service or the courts or whatever but you could have the, the you know the, the, the loveliest intentions in the world yeah. but but system systemic things that have been built four centuries ago to consistently make irish people behave in a certain way and that are now discriminatory practices we i have no doubt that these were not even in 1920s and 30s these were not consciously invoked as like we're going to get now we're going to complete the process although you know with some people it's a bit dubious some of them were a bit conscious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. but um however most in most cases we don't think it was conscious we just think that the the machine grinds on and keeps churning people out doing the same thing in the same way as was done and they don't know why and all the rest of it and of course as you know we we look at the history in order to understand firstly why and secondly if that's the case then maybe we actually can change this and really, fundamentally, you're trying to change the law. And I think that in Ireland, there would be an un some understanding of, this, of the fact that you have to turn that spotlight around, isn't there? There's two things that empires do very, very well. Um, the first thing, or colonized systems do very well. The first one is the spotlight's always on everybody else, not on them, which is yeah. what Bernard described. So yeah. the normal people go unremarked. They're not studied. Yeah. They're, not, they're not concerned. There's not even a label for them. Yeah. And that's, that's what we have with the normal Irish system in Dublin, the system in Dublin is not looked at as being kind of of its alien construction is not looked at, that yeah. maybe it's the source of discrimination. Yeah. And the second thing that the colonies do uh, very well, which was I just read earlier, actually, uh, in an essay by um, uh, Timothy Snyder there about Ukraine, but he said uh, just that very small sentence, he said, this is the essence of colonial logic. He says, only we, the colonizer, have a history. Anyone whom we encounter along the way does not. And uh, he says, for the purposes of a colonial war, this logic must be insisted upon, you know, even if it rests upon a wisp of baptism. In, in that case, he's talking about uh, Putin. <laughs> but um, but I think the logic in there is exactly the same uh, that, it, that, you know, you see it reemerge in 1963, where, as Bernard had described, and one of the very first things in the 1963 uh, solution, uh, you remember the that report that final solution in uh, yeah that mentioned the final solution to itinerancy so the very very first things in it which which is sort of a backhanded compliment to history it, it the first thing in it is we're not going to look into the history of these people um specifically you know what i mean and uh we'll leave that to somebody else and uh what we're going to do is apply measures uh right now uh without having any investigation into anything to do with history and therefore i think it becomes kind of a thing of like it's just becomes a a, a standard with the state I fully believe because of its colonial origin and not, not well, because... yeah that, 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 that is absolutely true but I think the where, where 
what you need to be very careful about in terms of that analysis it's on the one hand that that, that denial of history is absolutely there but that that the, the the commission itself which is there's no question about it it's, it's a it, it's it is a, a commitment to genocide i mean it, it doesn't pull its punches it says we have to get rid of these people and it, that will be a project which is good for them and good for the rest of us there's, there's no ambiguity that that's what it's about and that's why it needs to be repudiated but at the same time it's an act of modernity it's not an it's not something which is kind of you know, harking back to the Middle Ages and going, this is the way we treated travellers then, so we have to do it now. It's precisely because the Irish state sees itself as a post-colonial modernising state that it thinks treating travellers in this way is a is a normal and positive thing. So, so, so on the one hand, uh, being sensitive to the history is really important, but, you know, if you want to understand the way that the Irish state works, you have to see that as it's part of its modernising drive um, and an okay part of that is the denial of history, but it's really because it believes this is good for everybody that, that, that it should involve itself in this genocide. So it's, uh, well, you know, if you if you don't if you don't understand the 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 the, the, the modernity of that moment, then you're you're missing the, the point that, it, that, that it's rooted in a post-colonial state, not in a colonial I'll state. Give you just, I'll give you something that um, just before Dylan comes on. Um, yeah. At the present moment, right, um, and I actually picked this up from a guy called Oliver Reed. He's a political scientist in America. Um, and he was talking about in the 70s and the 80s how the American government, there was two particular departments only dealing with black people and give them barely no recognition. And that was the Department of Justice and the Health Board. Here in Ireland, two departments dealing with travellers. The Department of Justice, where travellers are overrepresented in the prison, the National Health Board called the HSE, where travellers are dropping dead. So the maternity part, you're absolutely right. I'm not blaming anybody in the 1960s. I think most of that was almost subconscious. They didn't know what they were doing. They were trying. There were some of them with actually good intentions. But the outcomes were absolutely genocidal. Because yeah. even when the local authorities today are not using funding, is putting people's lives at risk. But one thing you probably wouldn't have heard about, and I've never heard a travel organisation ever mention it, is at the same time, the HSE mental health department was sending back 48% of its funding that was allocated for traveler mental health. Now, when yeah. these children are killing themselves, and everybody knows travelers has some of the worst statistics on the island, and yeah. these departments were playing with people's lives, that is a form of genocide. Um, there's no doubt in my mind about that. Whether they are conscious of it or not, it doesn't matter. And also the history comes into it because why are people doing this? Why are, where do these systems come from? And again, I suppose we're looking at these institutions that didn't change in 1922, and they spent a lot of money ever since suppressing travellers that used a lot really? of English tactics, boulders, fences, yeah. evictions, all English ways of breaking down the Gaelic culture. So they're intertwined. It's like stepping outside of time, it's like time relativity. There's two particular times very important to all of this. One is the here and the now where travellers are dropping dead, where we didn't have these issues going back the decades, let alone the centuries. The other date is going, where did all this start from? which is a bit like what I said before about standing at the riverbank, watching fish getting sick and dying, and people are trying to help them in the here and the now. But you have to go up rivers to find out what poisoned them. 1963, 1922, 1600. Time does not matter because we're also yeah. looking at this at a very human level where we're trying not to just to decolonize, we're also looking to de-traumatize. And you yeah. don't tell someone who was traumatized, you cannot rule out one thing or another. You cannot go past 
past 1922 because that would make some difference. So you have to go as far as that person can go with it to understand it, I guess. Yeah, if I would have a, just to say to that, I would I'd say, yeah, your, your point is an interesting uh, point about post being, I wouldn't call it post-colonial law because I would say that it fits exactly with what we're saying in the sense that if you look at the makeup of the committee of the 1960s, Right, I know mean, this is, shouldn't really interrupt, but I would say it's self-identity as post-colonial, that's the key thing. Yeah, it yeah, yeah, itself yeah. as yeah. a post-colonial modernizing Yeah, state. we're being modern, yeah, yeah. And it's Which, in that framework that someone yeah. goes, well, why don't we just get it rid of travelers and, and yeah. it would have been better. Well, so I, 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 I agree with you, really. Was it a post-colonial? Absolutely not. Ireland is still a colonized state, north and yeah. south. Yeah. As I pointed out to you before, when, when they partitioned Ireland, they, the, the, 20, the six counties, you know, clearly was further integrated than the Union Empire. There's no ambiguity around that. But the 26th county was not a, was not, was not a republic. It was not an act of self-determination. Oh, no. It was a, a construction that was essentially a white dominion yeah. with an empire. So that, that's, that's the framework. That's the real framework yeah. in which we find ourselves even today. But this, the, sense, the sense of... Uh, of self that the state had was one that it was a post-colonial modernizing state. Yeah, yeah. That, that's really significant in terms of the, the fact that it has the energy to put into uh, yeah. an act of genocide against travelers. Yeah. So I would I would say that we would say I would say that still I'd say it's fascinating. It's something that needs to be studied further. And I think Bernard one was talking before about making a documentary about that kind of thing. And I think we think it's kind of a thing that could be centered, you know, that would warrant warrant further study. Outside, yeah. of, outside of my area, obviously not the middle age, outside of my area in a way because 1963. But yeah. I would say uh, my thought on that just briefly would be that it fits perfectly with the way I would look at it as well because although <clears throat> they do see themselves as modern, I completely agree with your point. Uh, however, if you look at the makeup of the committee, very simple thing, look at who's on it. <laughs> uh, it's like the butcher baker and the candlestick maker. It's like, a, it's like the farmer the class that you described who's emerges in the 1800s uh if you know what i mean and everybody else after that it's, it's, it's almost like a cross-section of the of the um, old pale society it's like the most settled world version yeah. of a committee you could possibly put together now court yeah. now i would just say that it's absolutely predictable that from their point of view it wouldn't matter if it was 15 20 16 20 or or 1963 they're going to come up with the same answer do you know what i mean uh, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be better because we have documents that say it in 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 the 1560s or whatever time you want to take Ulster plantation um, wouldn't it wouldn't, wouldn't it be better <laughs> wouldn't it be better wouldn't everything be better and wouldn't we be more modern if these people weren't here yeah yeah, yeah. You know what i mean and so yeah. i would say i would say that despite and it's absolutely really makes it actually more interesting that if you put it in the context you're talking about of it of it being actually they think they're they think they're being really modern mm. and yet and yet they fall straight into the trap of doing exactly what the colonial state in Ireland had spent four centuries doing, which is the, that the only way that we can um, be normal in inverted commas and advance and all the rest. And now, and now, in fairness, some of these people, they're, not, they're no longer like in 1560, they're not actually English colonists. What they are is they could be Irish people, but they've absorbed this idea of modernity even is completely, uh, is, a, is a, a thing that we see in lots of colonized countries where they've absorbed, yeah, yeah. internalized, the oppression from the colonist, uh, from the colonial power, and now everything about everything that's modern is nothing to do with our past, and it's everything to do with becoming like the English, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And you'll see that in a lot of colonized countries where they can't uh, they can't envisage uh, going forward uh, unless unless it's to get rid of everything that reminds them of their of their own past. Yeah. Now, so you could have a bit of both going on. 
it would warrant. I, th I think I think that's that is that that's that's broadly true. But there's there's a difference, I suppose, in the sense that you see it in that contrast between underdevelopment and development. And the point is that um, you know that colonialism, by definition, was about the underdevelopment of the colony. It was it was it was removing resources to the uh, 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 to the center of, of empire, and it was you know the, the the economic foundation of colonialism was to underdevelop the, the colonies, just to strip them of whatever they whatever the colonizer thought was useful. The, the post-colonial mentality is slightly different and sometimes it sees itself as, uh, as as precisely a counter to that. So it's about development, you know, and you think of the Aswan Dam as a classic example of, and, but, you know, rural electrification is a classic example in Ireland when they, they suddenly go, well, the English didn't, you know, didn't, uh, did, did, didn't electrify, so the new state will do this. Uh, so that, that, that notion of development fits very neatly and resonates with exactly what they're trying to do, with, with what Whittaker's doing with the state, actually, uh, in the early 1960s. And then it's not, it's no accident that the commission follows hot in the heels of this notion of a new, modernizing, developing state, industrializing, developing state. So it's, you know, it, it, you're, you're right, there's a historical legacy, but the, 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 anyone who analyzed colonialism would tend to see that colonialism linked to underdevelopment and, and the, the ideology, ideology that was feeding um, the, the kind of interventions that I'm talking about in 1960 was precisely a counter to to colonial underdevelopment and uh, industrialization and all the rest of it. So it's yeah. anyway, there's a there's a continuity, but there, there's also a rupture with history, which is really significant as well. You could yeah, you could say that. Although we wouldn't say I wouldn't see any difference between the, the Dublin the state that's in Dublin in uh, throughout the centuries, we wouldn't see much difference in its behaviour. You know what I mean? Um, There's also a different yeah. kind of experience involved because Dublin became sort of colonizer slash colonizer. Northern Ireland didn't have a different kind of experience than the West of Ireland had a completely different experience. <coughs> I think it was Edward Sayee when he was talking about imperialism. And I think he was making the difference between imperialism and colonization. Colonization is when they came onto the land. So England yeah. would have been colonizing other lands. Take America come 50s, 60s in, Amer in Ireland here. They were an imperialist. So they were feeding their colonial uh, mentality influences through that uh, channel. So I, I think even, yeah, I think it's, 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 it's get a bit mind-boggling at times because one way you want to explain to people that we're, we're not taking anything away from anyone and who we are doesn't, shouldn't bother anyone else. But we're trying, if anything, we're trying to give back something because we would see the settled population as lacking something. In other words, we're lacking a deep understanding of their own culture, their Gaelic culture and all that kind of stuff. And even if you were speaking the native Irish language, the foundation and the environment around you was still colonial English. And the only reason you got some peace is because you stayed in a house on the land and then you were moving around, you were moving targets. So that was the only real difference, I think, divided us over time. Yeah, I, I, and I, I mean, I'm going to bring us back to our, uh, our, our title that we've kind of strayed a wee bit from. But I mean, I, I, I would say it in this context that you know, there, there, there's more of a there, there's a more of a conversation at least around reunification and the implications of that and what that might mean. And it's very important that you know travelers are, are part of that conversation. Uh, but at the, at the same time, where Travel Vision has got it absolutely right, I think, is that you, you locate that conversation not in what does it mean to get rid of the border, but what 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 are the implications of saying that Ireland still needs to be decolonized? That's the that's the starting point for that. Now, if you if you do that, all the all the issues that you're raising in terms of uh, the 
the history of colonization and the effect that it had on settled people are absolutely pertinent because you kind of you're you're saying to people, well, what you know, what are what are the what are the implications of decolonizing now for us in the present and the future? What what would what would that mean? The language is one obvious example. You know, most people would still like to have a language, but most people don't have don't have Irish. So there's an issue of how that how that can be uh, revived if that's if that's what what, what people want. But there's also a, a question of people's relationship to the land. Like clearly there was you know a colonial dispossession going over as as we've discussed already you know 800 years so what 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 would it mean to actually talk about a new relationship between the irish people and uh, 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 and the land you know which was kind of promised by uh, in, in the proclamation of 1916 you know but never delivered on so all those all those questions are absolutely pertinent to the question of what does it mean to decolonize and i suppose the only thing i would add to that is that uh, in, in terms of the, the conversation that settled Irish people and traveler Irish people have around that is that it's a it, it's never going to be an event it's never going to be you know we get rid of the border and then suddenly things are only, only okay you know uh, decolonization is something with if it if it happens at all happens over a long period of time and happens incrementally and is a is something with which people have to struggle over again and again and again and again so in that sense the, the, the political question that confronts us in terms of the, this, this notion of United Ireland and the United People, it's it, that where you're starting is the right place to start, like with the history and then bring it up to the present. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Can I, I, I was just, I would say that the decolonization thing is great because I mean, in the sense, I think it's the correct way to start as well, because it, it kind of the process you'd want to go through before you went anywhere near changing any particular borders or anything in my mind. Yeah. Um, because the uh, because of everything we've just talked about, yeah. But, but also it puts us into a into a it puts us in a context where we have a not where we're in an international process. You know, it's not just Ireland. Then it becomes yeah. everyone's informing everyone else, whether it's Ireland, New Zealand, Australia, America, whatever. And that's and that's great too because you've got all these different um, uh, accounts of colonization and then also ways of trying to deal with it. And I, and I, and I would say I was going to say as a as a. On a, on, on a funny uh, funny note, the land you, you mentioned about the land uh, appropriation. What I noticed that um, it's a fact at the moment that the land commission records that are held somewhere in some big shed in Offaly or somewhere it's very strange like that. Um, the, the government still won't give access to them for historians. Sorry, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and the, the obvious related point to that is that you know that, that there is some, as we saw at that recent conference in Galway, there's quite a lot of good um, contemporary research being done around traveler spaces, spaces that used to belong to travelers and now don't and are now very often surrounded by boulders and all the rest of stuff that we're talking about. But I mean, yeah. to me, decolonization is, is, is about more than just remembering that history, but going up, what, what was the process of these spaces that were traveler spaces being, being removed from travelers? And then the, uh, the concomitant question of, well, what would, it, what, 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 re, what would reparation or restitution look like in that context? How would we restore those spaces to the traditional owners? And you, 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 you begin to see that happening in Australia and, and, uh, and, and North America and Canada and places like that. But that's precisely what the, the question around decolonization should mean in terms of relationship to land in Ireland. It's like all those spaces, first of all, have to be recorded. We're starting to see that happening a wee bit. But the second point is then, well, how, how are they returned? To travelers, I mean, and, that, and that that then becomes a much more complex and contentious political question because you know who knows who's got possession of. The well, I, I think that's I think that's why it has to be brought. If I may say, just it has to. That's um, something you might want to mention about uh, that Bernard is that 
we, we had looked at it very, uh, one thing happening that we thought was positive in that regard is that in Ireland, obviously in Ireland, it's, it's, it, we have a comp, it's, it's complex in the sense that we have um, the question of, yeah, returning things to communities though becomes yeah. much wider because now it's like, well, the whole island was colonized and everybody in it is affected in different ways. Yeah. Um, so what would be fair and what wouldn't be fair? Well, uh, well obviously we, we're looking for equality for um, the communities that still suffer the most from that history not being addressed in the law. Yeah. But we noticed that back in January, on a positive note, that the um, Supreme Court in, in, in the South made that decision um, uh, about the, in the case against them, um, what was the family, Bernard? Um, oh, that was the 31st of January of this year, uh, Bernard yeah. McDonough and Helen McDonough and the Supreme yeah. Court ruling in Ennis, County Clare. Yeah, and in that in that ruling, the the court acknowledged that in the hundred years since 1922, just like we talked about, that actually yeah. the that the that the system, the law, which it which by implication it had inherited from the Empire days, um, and from the long history of Dublin uh, of Dublin's law, um, uh, had failed had failed to um, you know failed to provide justice to people who lived in uh, like travellers lived, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I can't remember paraphrasing it, whatever court language it was, um, and and that it would be justified uh, at this point in the making, um, uh, you know, in making a decision that um, that the um, constitutional recognition basically it was down to what's a house, <laughs> you know, what is a house? Of course, a house in English law can only be what a what the English law says is a house, and of course, all Irish law is in fact English common law and, and all the rest of it, uh, basically. Just modified to our conditions a little bit and therefore Irish houses explicitly were never recognized or the Irish way of living was never recognized but the Supreme Court made the decision in January that actually the uh, full protection of the constitution for the home could be extended to uh, travelers temporary uh, site at the side of the road uh, that they'd a couple of caravans I think and whatever else and uh, we, we think that's historic because we also yeah. we think that's a precedent and also yeah. it's and also, it's, a, it's actually a form of what I would suggest, maybe, I don't know what you think, of how uh, decolonization actually would work in practice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's these little like little straws in the wind, but they are really important that we celebrate them. And, but it, it also shows that there is some flexibility in the system as well. Like sometimes you can actually win as well. And that, 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 that there's a significance in that too. But, but I think the, the, the point we'd be make, we, we, would, we would all share is that if you're serious about decolonization, it would, it would, it would be so much more profound than the implications of that decision, which no doubt will be, you know, will be restricted in terms of the real implications as, in, in much the same way as the victory, if you like, on ethnicity has, has, has actually had very few tangible positive uh, benefits for, for travelers. So that decolonization, if it means anything, would mean a profound rethinking and redistribution of, 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 of power in, in Irish society in North and South of the border. So it's, while that, that may be a, a, a hint of where it's going, it'll, it'll, the implications of, of doing it properly are, 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 are much bigger than that, I think. Well, it's like a crowbar in the in the in the door. I would have thought it's like well, uh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> Probably the worst. I, well, no, the only the only the only reason I'm hesitant of that is because I mean, my Bernard is would be much more critical of of the, the 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 function of the term ethnicity and all. But I mean, I think a lot of people expected 
a lot more. And I, I still think it was a significant victory. And I still think that ethnicity denial by the state was showed you how significant it was to, well, to, to fight that fight. But the, yeah. real, the reality is it has not transformed. No, yeah, no, no, but I, I would I would say that, that that exact, just very briefly, that 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 uh, decision by the Supreme Court wouldn't have happened except for the campaign for ethnicity, which actually, yeah, because, okay. because the state recognised the ethnicity, then it allowed the Supreme Court to make the decision. And actually, even though the judge might be have his own other reasons, and I'm sure children in the nation equally, uh, it's good. It's from little simple starts and acorns. It's one of the reasons we look back a bit further on this all the time is for exactly that reason, is that like from my perspective, anything you create that the state is funding without the state having first done the work that we talked about of decolonization and recognizing yeah. where, it, where it comes from uh, is always going to turn into what you've just described. Yeah. Because because that's what it is. It's been doing that for four hundred years, and it and unless and it's not that it's not that the it's not you know the state can reform itself. We've looked at things that it can do, but it has to understand. It would we would we would have to campaign or understand first that uh, okay. So these law, like for example, Bernard had said that only the just like in the U.S. that the just that the only people dealing the the state entities dealing with travelers was Department of Justice and Department of Health. Is it HSEA? Yeah. Yeah, so on the one hand, uh, there's something wrong with them. Uh, and on the other hand, they're, uh, they're actually uh, the internal security problem, if you know what I mean. And um, that's historic. And, and, and that tells us as well, though, that, they, that no matter how the state engages, if the state creates NGOs, whatever, if, it, if it ha it's not capable, it hasn't been capable, of, uh, because that's not its origin, to allow alternative Irish identities on the island to exist. And actually, it holds up a warning sign as well for things like unification because of uh, integration. Yeah. When we're talking about other communities like uh, Protestant communities or uh, and, and other identities on the island, if it if it if it's incapable of dealing with the old Irish identities, uh, travelers and and Irish speaking communities in the, in, the, in yeah. the Republic have no great history with the state either, which is continually ground away at their at their ability to. Um, revive and and even comfortably use the language and i would suggest for the exact same reason yeah yeah, so, yeah. i mean the only the only thing i would say about that is i think it's slightly too mechanistic to see the the sector if you like what i what i would still call the traveler support movement although bernard probably would like that that, that, that kind of characterization but that this the sector had a, had relative autonomy from the state so the state was trying to do something with travelers and the sector was trying to do something different and they're they're not you know sometimes of course they overlapped and of course sometimes they were they were much too closely and in, in, in a in working in tandem whenever the traveler support movement should have been much more oppositional in my opinion i think bernard would probably agree with that as well but at the same time they're not the same things like and, it, and, and just because the traveler support movement or the travel organizations were doing something didn't mean that the state had a, had, had 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 cleverly worked out a uh, a Machiavellian strategy to 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 make that intervention and and and, well, and, I, 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 and it just it never works that. Way. If I would ask you, Robbie, how would you see decolonize? I mean, across the whole island, would you see it as how would you see this decolonization process ideally? Um, <laughs> there's there's a small question. Well, I mean, I, 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 the, the border has to go. That's why I'd be much more optimistic about it. at least that creates the, a proper structure to begin the rest of these conversations like you know the 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 the, the immediate um indication of the continuing colonization of ireland is is the is the, the, the continued existing well the continued existence of both states because one can't live without the other but more particularly the the the, the uh, 
you know, the constitutional link with between the six counties and the and uh, the, the UK. So in that sense, something that looks like it might happen, at least as a possibility, would be an important precondition um, for a, a broader process of 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 seriously asking what a, what a, what does a decolonized state look like. So not, that's all. You know, that sounds a bit wishy-washy, but nevertheless, it's true. It's like you have to you have to create the 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 the, the constitutional political context in which at least it's possible for the Irish people to self-determine. And then the next question is, well, what what is what's the, what does decolonization, what does self-determination mean in that new context? But until we can't self-determine as a as twenty-six counties and the six counties, I, I take that as a, 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 a as a given. But I mean, it's, I suppose the other point it's it's also that 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 thing about it's a politics, and it's a politics that I I, I don't I know people are, people used to use this term partnership. It was like part, travelers are meant to be in partnership with the state and, and settled people and all the rest of it. And I hated that word, and I it seems to be allyship, but I hate that. Just I think that's coming from BLM, <laughs> but I, I don't like that word any any better. No. To me, those those alliances are made because people are in struggle. And that's because, you know, travelers are in struggle for obvious reasons for all the things we've talked about, but but so are, you know, working class communities, so are LGBT communities. You know, there's a whole series of, 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 of communities in, in struggle who would like to see a, a, a transformed Ireland, a decolonized Ireland. So the, way, the, the politics that will get us there is a politics that builds alliances between those people. And, you know, and so far as I've done anything that's, helpful to progressing the cause of justice for travelers it's because it's in my interest to do that like that's like back to the point where we started it's like the, the the reason i was interested in understanding and doing something about anti-travel racism was because it was used against everybody else at the same time it was a tool of reaction so of course at one level i had empathy and sympathy with travelers who were shittily treated by the state and by local politicians who were saying outrageous genocidal things about travelers but they were doing it not just to be mean or horrible or victimize travelers they're doing it to to create a context for reaction and inequality so in that sense you know my when i stand in solidarity with travelers it's because it's in my interest to do it and you know what we all have to do is is find the traveler politics that can that is happy to to speak to that broader project and i at the end of the day I don't think that's my choice. It's for people like Bernard to to to, to decide what that, that that looks like. But we'll all know at the point that 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 that, that we've got there uh, because we we understand exactly what that 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 what, what, what that that vision of difference, a different Ireland is about, that vision of a decolonized Ireland is about. Um, you know, it's going to be more equal, it's going to have a, a different relationship to its history in the way that we've talked about. Uh, and it's going to be much more uh, celebratory of, of, of difference in the way that was promised by the by the proclamation in 1916. You know, you get no more powerful vision of a of a post-colonial society than the notion of a society that genuinely cherishes its children equally. And all I you know I, I, I said this a couple of weeks ago, but I'll repeat it again, is that if 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 Ireland's serious about equality and self-determination then it has to start with cherishing its its traveler children equally you know that, that, that's a, a simple vision but but if if people can't subscribe to that then it's not an ireland that i want to live in that's an interesting one and i actually give us a kind of a the other side of that um 
that would be similar to me saying that maybe the NGOs must go for yeah. all, or do we try to change the mentalities of the people that works in the organizations? So therefore, by default, they change their practices and their attitudes, and therefore the environment changes naturally. So you're caught between which one goes first, the NGOs or the borders, to talk, action first, action first, talk later. There's a couple of bits and pieces that I think we'll have to go into that. Oh, well, yeah, you're, you're, you're dead, right? But I mean, I, maybe what I said was sounded a bit too mechanistic. I, of course, all, of, all the things that you're saying about raising consciousness are, should be happening all the time. Like if, you, you can't, you ha- if you're going to decolonize a country, you have to start with decolonizing your own mind. There's no question about Absolutely. that. But all I'm saying is the next stage is then, well, what do we do about the, all, the, all the other stuff? You know, I've, I've liberated myself. What, you know, there's, there's still a, there's still a, a, a another project to be getting on with at the, at what you've done now. I would say that that the, the 16, the 16 um, uh, rebellion and its roots in Connolly's vision of that federation that uh, allowed all that divert, how would you put it? Unity uh, from diversity. I, yeah. I think that all sounds grand to me. Yeah. yeah. So I would like to get to a point where we can sort of celebrate the arts. Uh, and show the Catholics, Protestants, travelers, white people, black people, a lot of these labels are colonial and we can move away from them. We can sidestep them eventually, I'd like to think. Now, Mr. Robbie McFay, finish it off. I don't, I, I don't think I have anything else to say, Bernard, except to, to commend you for the work. I mean, I think, I think what you're doing is really, really important. I think it has opened up a space um, that, you know, doesn't, doesn't exist naturally in terms of organizations which tend to be very institutionalized and are, are working to particular agendas and have to you know have to for for good and bad reasons be very sensitive to the relationship they have to the the, the, the state which sponsors them so for for all those reasons it actually is hard to create a space to have the kind of discussions that you're having and uh, and that's why it's I think it's so significant so it's just it's it's it's, it's brilliant that you're doing it but as I said to you before I I, I I get the sense that there's a more general acceptance that something does have to change, and the you know the the, the kind of intellectual phrase I would use for doing that is changing the paradigm. And that, uh, but all, all that's saying is that the the way that we're doing this work at the minute isn't isn't working particularly well, and we need to do something radically different in order to, or in order to transfer to transform traveller lives. So to do that, we have to create the space that you're creating to have these conversations. And I, I think that's, that's really important. And I've, it's been a great pleasure, I have to say, for me to, to take part in that. So many thanks for inviting me. I'm honoured, uh, quite honest. Um, I think a good way of uh, decolonization is a few good Life of Brian movies in Ireland. <laughs> and we take the piss out of everyone, Catholics, Protestants, the Pales people, you name it. Because um, that's the only way I think we apply some humour. I'm going to stop the recording now and we'll talk for a second and we'll, we'll let everyone go home to bed. Right. Uh, so thank you very much for your time. I really, truly appreciate it. Both of you. Appreciate it, I have.